guys, this is Amanda Mork from My Rock Moment, the show where we chat with some familiar faces about the stories and unforgettable moments that made them a diehard fan of rock and roll. This week's episode is for all you lovers of hard rock and metal. We've got Eric Blair from The Blaring Out Show, and the interview is like a shot of adrenaline. Eric's going to talk to us about his celebrity interview show, but as a SoCal native, he'll take us back to the Sunset Strip scene in the 80s, and it was as debaucherous and rowdy as one would imagine. He'll talk about hanging with Motley Crue, Poison, touring with Striper, and getting to see Guns N' Roses at the Whiskey before they hit it big. And if you're a fan of Black Sabbath and Dio, you're definitely going to enjoy this one as well. Be sure to stick around to the very end, though, because there's an awesome Stevie Nicks story. That little lady packs a punch. That's all I'll say. So let's get started. Eric, thank you so much for coming on. Thank <laughs> we you for finally connected. Me. Oh, yeah. No, it was awesome. Well, I want to get right to it because I know you have stories for days. I mean, your, your background is just incredible. Um, you've got your show, The Blaring Out Show. Now, I know things have been on pause lately because such as 2020. But I also know that uh, people can actually access your show uh, or will be able to access your show beyond YouTube, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, the show about three months ago started started airing on Marin TV, which is uh, Silicon Valley's uh, own public access station. Um, I believe it airs on, on Channel 27, I believe at 1030 on Fridays. It's its normal... Uh, airing time, uh, give or take. You can go to MarinTV.com and find out. But basically, um, they are rerunning the show though all week. So, and there it's HD, and it's not regular public access. It's it reaches a hundred thousand homes in San Francisco, Marin County, and then it also uh, is through AT and T Uverse, which I think reaches either five hundred thousand or a million homes. So. That's awesome. Well, before any of that was happening, you were reaching all the homes in the OC, which is where you're from, right? You're a you're yeah. a so SoCal boy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's Tustin awesome. High. Tustin High, Rustin, Tustin High. Yeah. But, <laughs> I but I started my show basically in in Dreamland because in 1994, I got a job working in a modeling agency because I was, a have been a makeup artist. I was a Mac makeup artist, but I got a job in a modeling agency in 94 and basically started the show in 96. I moved to Costa Mesa because as a child, the edifice of fashion Island loomed large in my life. And the same with Plaza, those were iconic edifices. So um, I wanted as a as a dumb kid, I wanted to be close to that into the beach. So I get it. I get it. I mean, uh, I think a lot of guys want to be near all that. (laughs) Well, I want to jump back even before the show, because I know that growing up, um, you know, you were a character. (laughs) And um, you uh, I think I read a story. Um, You had some incredible moments in like even from your high school years. Uh, you know, and that's generally when a love of music really takes hold. We're kind of figuring out who we are and we're these brooding teens, but you were a Ronnie James Dio fan. And for those of you that don't know Ronnie Jam- James Dio, if you know Elf, if you know Rainbow, if you know Black Sabbath, then you know Ronnie James Dio, let alone Dio itself. Um, but I know that you were like a super fan and you created a religion called Dioism. Uh, yeah. Um, me and my- <laughs> 
well, I'll leave unnamed. Uh, basically, he was a very imposing character. Um, he was kind of, I was the brains, he was the bronze. And uh, basically what happened, this is kind of where it all starts, is we went to an anti-rock seminar and learned way too much uh, and rebelled and decided that we were going to start persecuting people that came against our rock and roll. You know, a lot like the Ozzy Osbourne song off of Diary of a Madman, uh, where he says, um, uh, rock and roll is my religion and my law. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that that's right off there. Uh, you can't kill rock and roll, that song. So we were very much in that gist. And, um, you know, the, it was like Black Sabbath. Ronnie James Dio was a member of Black Sabbath at that time. Um, we went and saw Black Sabbath um, at the Long Beach Arena on their Mob Rules tour. Um, his lyrics, I mean, there was nobody besides Rob Halford that could get, that could say words and that there was actual power behind those lyrics. And then you add that Black Sabbath backing him and it's just unstoppable. I agree with you. I agree with so, you. But So this deep love came from literally going to an anti-rock seminar. Yeah. And it was all yeah. dark, darker rock, sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I basically, my life pivoted on the first Van Halen record. That was, that just changed my life. That, that was blew, what, 78? Yeah, 78. My friend had a, uh, uh, a Radio Shack realistic stereo. His mom had just bought it for him. And back in those days, you were the man if you had one of those. And, <laughs> And he kept bugging me, Van Halen, Van Halen. I'm all, dude, I'm into the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel. And he's like, no, you got to listen to this band. And I mocked him. And then he played, sadly, he played Running With The Devil. And I'm like, what? There's power in this music. And it was just like, I got to have that cassette. And I traded Hot Wheels tracks and Kiss Alive (laughs) 2, which I never listened to it. Somebody gave me the Kiss Alive 2. It was pretty well-worn. But I traded that and he gave me that cassette. Every morning I would crank that and my parents were just not happy with it. Uh, 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 it's just like, my parents were not happy. Uh, oh my God. Well, I can understand that. I mean, it was pretty different. It was late 70s. I mean, disco was taking hold, early 80s. But there was a real scene happening in uh, SoCal during that time too. You know, I think I think people were rebelling against the glam, the glam rock and the disco and all of that. And there was a hard sound um, coming out of the radio waves, you know, not just with Sabbath and, you know, um, a lot of those bands, but also locally like, uh, you know, Black Flag emerging and all of those just a harder, grittier sound. So I get that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the 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 thing with. The thing with um, Dio and Dioism and that whole charade uh, was that that is what actually led me to meeting Striper. Once I heard the message, I knew that it was real, that there was truth to it. But I wanted I didn't want to I wanted to run from it. And so basically, one day we're at the beach, we're down there at the fun zone. And my friend is playing video games. I leave him. I'm wearing my Iron Maiden number of the B shirt because I just saw Iron Maiden in concert. <laughs> oh, jeez. 
And I come back and some guy's talking to him. And I'm like, oh, great. And the guy's like, look, you guys don't need to bring my friends. All I'm worried to Dio is um, we're going to burn in hell with Ronnie James Dio because, <laughs> you know, Ronnie James Dio during Heaven and Hell, he says, uh, a little angel looked looked down at me and said, heaven is where you ought to be. And and then and uh, and then the little uh, demon looked up at uh, Ronnie in the in the Heaven and Hell thing live. He says, um, he says, well, I want to burn in hell with all of you. He, t- you know, says in the, in the live version. So we took that to heart. And the guy, this dude, Guido, said, you don't have to. Come down. You can rock for God. Come down. to. The, I'll take you to this garage and you'll see this band. And man, it was Striper. And I'm like, okay, the running is over. Like, this mm-hmm. is where I, it's like, you can't ignore that this turns into this. It's like all your dreams that you ever had suddenly, like that you've been like, running from it's just like bam here's your dream on a on a paper plate (laughs) wow you know and that led to you going on you actually went on the road with them for a while right yeah that i mean that was my entree into the official music business now remember before that i had had encounters with rock stars because my friend liz was a groupie i met her on a on a um you know, you remember when we used to call time and sometimes you could hear other people going, hey, hey, it was like, um, do you remember time? At the tone, the time will be. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So I used to call time and there were and there, there'd be like a party line going on. And I yelled and I ended up becoming friends with this groupie and she was friends with David Lee Roth. She like hung out with all the rock stars and I'm all, I want to do that. And she's like, <laughs> do it. Just sneak backstage at concerts. And I'm like, not realizing that I wasn't a pretty girl. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I hear that helps. Helps yeah. a little bit. I didn't know. I didn't realize. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, I'll just. So I met Nancy Wilson of Heart. I met Mark Andres. I went, I snuck backstage at Irvine Meadows. I made friends with the bass player of uh, hard at the time, Mark Andres, he said, come to, you know, stand on the side of the stage. So I watched Hart from the side of the stage. And then I met Nancy Wilson, which is an interesting story, but you know, we might not want to get into that, but basically <laughs> there, there's, there's going to be a theme here of famous female rock stars protecting me from security guards. <laughs> I got a great TV next story. Oh gosh. I know right. you love Fleetwood Mac. I do. I do. And I love Stevie Nicks. So we're going to have to hear that at some point. But so this was around like what, 1980 or so? Let's see. The heart thing. I mean, the, the, the entree into starting to sneak backstage and meeting these people started in like 81, 82. 81, 82. Oh, okay. And this is when uh, I know you mentioned that you had actually snuck backstage of a Motley Crue concert. Yeah, that was my senior year of high school. Basically, I had gone out and bought a Wii magazine, which was Bob Guccione, who owned Penthouse. He came out with another magazine called Wii. And Motley Crue had done a photo shoot in the magazine. And I was on the Motley Crue tip before anybody because of Liz. Because Liz was a groupie. She was hanging out with Rat. She was hanging out with Striper. I mean, she was part of the sunset scene. So she would talk about these people and be like, who cares about them? I'm into Led Zeppelin and Van Halen. But I didn't realize these people were going to become rock stars later on. So 
It was such she a scene was, on the strip too at that point. She told me Motley Crue, this band is going to be big. And she gave me the cassette on leather records. And I played that for people at high school and they mocked me. Those guys, you know, they said derogatory comments about them and, and all the tough dudes. I'm tough. You know, well, <laughs> a year later, they were cranking it in their car. Oh, so, of course they were. And so they were playing at Perkins Palace. We went to Perkins Palace. and um, In Pasadena. In Pasadena. And I had a uh-huh. jacket that ha- that was, that um, I, it, the pocket was torn and I would shove uh, propaganda stuff inside the jacket and, and sneak it in. So I snuck that magazine in and I told my friends at the time that took me up there. I'm going to meet Motley Crue. I'm going to hang out with Motley Crue tonight and meet them. And um, they mocked me and said, that's never going to happen. And then I just, I had this, my mom worked for Beckman. And so she had a little plastic badge. So I take, I put that thing on and just walked right backstage. (gasps) That's hilarious. Once I pulled out that magazine, Tommy Lee was like my best friend in the whole world. He's like, dude, check this out. He's like, Vince came over. I was it, it was like Mick, all the guys, they all wanted to autograph it. And I hung out with Tommy and and Vince. And as a kid, I'm probably eight, 17, 18 on the precipice. Uh I remember thinking Vince Neal looks so short. <laughs> Tommy Lee was like this Mickey Six and Tommy Lee, but you know, and they were really cool. They were really cool to me, you know? Um, and then I remember getting in the car afterwards and just being like, yeah, I got this Motley. And they're like, no way. And I'm like, yeah. So was that exciting for you? <laughs> was that exciting for you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you did. real? I mean, you knew they were big, but I mean, now looking back, it's incredible. 81, 82, they were like an it band, especially on the Sunset Strip. They were hitting all the clubs. But, you know, close to 40 years later, they're still going strong. It's incredible to have those memories that early on. Yeah, I think Molly Crew definitely, uh, we, we thought they're going to make it. They're going to be big. We never thought they weren't going to make it. Um, I think Shout at the Devil for me was the first two albums for me were the best, but they've had some great songs over the years, like kickstart my heart. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I've had a lot of encounters with those guys over the years. (laughs) So you can keep keep most of them to to yourself. This is a PG show. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) uh, But, but basically I have a good story. So when I started working for Striper, we used to play the country club in Reseda a lot. We and we opened for Bon Jovi. Yep, Striper played with Rat and you know Bon Jovi and Poison. You guys were really in the mix with all these big you know metal bands and hair bands at the time. Yeah, I was I was with Striper the first time that Poison ever stepped on a stage in LA because I was on the, I was standing on the stage when Ricky rocket brought his drums and started setting up his drum kit. And I was talking to Ricky rocket. We were ha- we, I, we had a con- an interesting conversation and basically Vicki Hamilton, if you know anything about rock and roll history, 
was managing Striper at the time. Mm. Vicki Hamilton is the one that got Poison their deal, Motley Crue their deal, and Guns N' Roses their deal. Okay, she's a legend. Vicki Hamilton and me were watching Poison do their sound check, and I said, these guys suck. And they kind of did at the time. And, and she said, you know what? I like them. I think there's something there. I'm going to work with these guys. And I'm like, great. And uh, <laughs> I, ended up, I ended up being friends with those guys too That's much. Awesome. I'm sorry, Amanda. It's <laughs> all right. I mean, I you're have- a wealth of knowledge. That's why I have you on right now. Okay. You know, you've been there, you've seen it and you know it. There yeah. aren't a lot of people like that. So no, but I, when you had told me that you'd gotten backstage with Motley Crue in the early eighties, I, I can't, I mean, now I wouldn't even be able to hang. <laughs> well, everybody, all the illuminaries of the Sunset Strip were backstage at that show at the, when we play open for Bon Jovi and there was a party backstage and it was Vince Neil, Lita Ford, Tommy Lee, a bunch of other rock stars, but basically Tommy Lee, he comes in the, in the, in the backstage and in that party room. And the first thing he says, God bless him. Who's got the Coke. He's yelling at the top of his lungs. Who's got the Coke. And the, and, and he is like, this guy is a gentleman. He, over the years of me knowing Tommy Lee, he would always introduce me to his latest beautiful girlfriend. And at the time, he's like, this is my girlfriend. She's a penthouse centerfold. And I'm like, cool. (laughs) I remember she's wearing a red dress that was slit all the way down and up. But he was, and Lita Ford's always been a sweetheart. I love Mm -hmm. Lita Ford. She's always been the coolest. And I actually, you know, back in those days, we had the Striper Bibles. And we would cover them with the Striper sticker and then Striper would throw them out in the audience. That used to be what they would do. So I would get, I would hand those out to people and they liked them. They thought it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting. Two very juxtaposing messages kind of coming together under one genre and you have fans that love both, love all of it, you know, because it's a sound. It's a sound. Yeah. Yeah. It resonates with people how interesting for you to be on both sides of it. And, and when you sent me a message about, okay, first of all, I died when you said this, that you were at the whiskey when Guns N' Roses came on, I think you said played the whiskey for the first time and you were standing right under Slash with a striper pick in your pocket. <laughs> that was such, I mean, I need to hear the whole story because- yeah, I don't know if it was the first time. What it was is it was a band fry. And basically, Guns N' Roses was headlining the band fry. And it was at the Whiskey. And it was like seven bucks. And it was like all the bands that played that night were bands that were going that were signed and that were going to be break the next year. My brother worked it, my brother worked in record distribution. So he worked in in record. He worked at the number one record distributor, and he brought home the 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 uh, appetite for destruction. And he said, "Incredible, these guys are going to be huge." Yeah, and told the guys at the distributor, "You need to buy you know twenty cases of this because there's a song on here called Sweet Child of Mine,' which eventually is going to break." And um, now my brother's an attorney. 
<laughs> that's what that's what the music business will do to you. But um, yeah, he turned me on to them, and I heard that song. Um, I see your sister in a Sunday dress. That's <laughs> it's so easy. <laughs> yeah, bass tone because I'm a bass player, and I and I was in a punk band at the time, and all my songs were written on bass. I sang, but I wrote all my songs on bass. So bass tone and Duff McKagan had the most killer bass tone. So. Um, I'm like, let's go. They're playing, you know, uh, LA rocks or whatever the magazine was called said that they were going to be playing with pastor pussycat, the malls, the zeros, a bunch of bands. And basically, um, we went down there. We were first in line. We were front row. It was a sweat fest. There were girls sticking hot cigarettes in our faces basically, uh, cause everybody was so wasted. And, you know, me and my brother, Mr. Straight-Laced straight Business Guys, kind of, you know. And, um, yeah, man, Slash came out. I remember that uh, Steven Adler couldn't play drums that night because he had broken his hand. So oh, i roadie, pictures of that, yeah. Their drum roadie came out and played. But, you know, this is a thing. Yeah, so Slash came out. He was hanging over me and saying, I feel like I'm going to throw off. And I'm thinking, great. Like, I'm going to get vomited on now. So um, he's like, who's got a pick? Who's got a pick? And I kept thinking to myself, I have a striper pick in my pocket. But I'm, you know, I'm still very young. And I'm thinking to myself, this that's probably not going to make him too happy if he looks at it in the condition he's in right now. And I mean, let's face it, Guns N' Roses was at their most rebellious. Yeah. And uh, so I uh, I let it pass. But it was it was a good show. I just remember, I'll never forget, when, when Axl Rose hit that stage, it was like you felt your skin crawl. I mean, it was just so... In a good intense. way. Yeah, it, it, it moved me. It moved everybody. Like you felt the energy. Do you think it was the band itself, um, but also the venue? I mean, the whiskey, come on. It's so intimate. There's so much history there. Then you get an explosive band like Guns N' Roses coming on. I can't imagine that the energy was just out of control. Yeah, I mean, the place was packed. Um, there were girls, wall-to-wall girls there you know, um, all, all vying for the attention of the band. Um, yeah, I think having a packed house like that is good. I mean, I don't think the whiskey was as, um, I mean, they've, it's gotten very, um, I don't know, very militaristic. A lot of venues in LA have become very militaristic. Like, you know, you got to follow the rules. I think things were a little more freer back then, you know, in 1987. For sure. So imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And so that adds to the fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Anything goes. And did Slash ever get a pick? I'm sure he did. (laughs) I I can't even imagine the stories of that time. I mean, you know, it's funny because um, most people know that if they've listened to any of my other interviews, I I lived off the Sunset Strip for like seven, eight years. Just up until recently, uh, a couple of months ago. What years between when and when? What was your first year there? First year I moved there was 2000. Well, actually, probably 2013, 2012, 2013. Okay. And I lived right next to Sunset Marquee. 
And then I moved directly across from Tower Records. And, 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 you know, that wasn't by coincidence. I absolutely love the strip and what it was and all the history and the nostalgia and, you know, everything that happened in the sixties. But then what happened in the eighties was just no holds barred. And I guess it was a little bit, you know, with the sixties as well, but it was a totally different scene. And the eighties were just an all out, just party in the streets you know, um, going from club to club and the flyers on every, you know, oh, yeah. um, telephone yeah. pole and walls. And, you yeah. know, this band's playing here tonight. This band's playing there tonight. And you knew what you were going to do on a weekend just by walking up and down the street and seeing who was playing where. Uh, look, we were we were on the strip. And I mean, it was a crowd. There were bodies everywhere. I mean, there were girls everywhere. You would you would definitely get dates out there um, because you had Gazaris on one end. Yep. You had the whiskey on the other end, and I mean, there were and there were women everywhere, and uh, and and rocker dudes that were like, "I'm going to be a rock star." And Poison was there. We'd always talk to those guys. They would be full, full, passing out their flyers, and they knew that you know I worked for Striper, and um, so. The thing, okay, so one of the times we played the um, country club, Vince Neal was there. And there's a picture of me with him. He's wearing a 16. But I I ran into Vince a lot. But one time in particular, I was hanging out. Vince Neal came. We were started to talk. And Vince was, that night that you see that picture, he was on a good one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh he gra- he got me in a headlock and basically was wanted to just somebody to talk to he wanted to share he was sharing about um because i think he was experiencing what it was like to be a rock star because that was around the shout at the devil time and he was a huge rock star and um he and I, we were talking and he grabbed me, he got me in a headlock and, and I could, just kind of a hug, but he directed me towards the balcony of the country club. He just wanted to talk. He talked to me about what it was like being on the road, uh, opening for ZZ Top, um, how much he loved it. And he just wanted somebody to talk to. And I mean, in between, you know, I mean, the guy was on a good one. So, I mean but I could make out what he was saying, but he had me in headlock there for about 15 minutes. You know, he just wanted somebody to talk to. So, and, and I'm like, Vince Neil has got his arm around me right now. You know, like I'm a kid, (laughs) you know, it's still fresh, you know, I'm not jaded yet. So, so, uh, and then, and then also Striper, we believed in supporting the other bands. So if they had a show, at a music store or something, we would go there and support them. There was no like that. We're better than those guys or whatever. It was very supportive. We went to go one day because I used to hang out with Michael Sweet all the time. We were like bros, and um, I went with Michael, and I can't remember if Oz and Tim were there. Um, we went to a, a music store to see Great White play. And it was a small music store and they were playing and Vince Neil showed up in his see in the movie. It's a, it's a Corvette. It was not a Corvette. It was a red, um, it's a Pantera. 
It was a red Pantera. And, you know, guys, rock guys, we, they like to talk about their cars. So all of the rock stars like Vince, Michael Sweet, I think Oz Fox and Tim Gaines, we were all there and they were doing the car talk and they were talking to Vince because, see, the Striper guys, they came up with all those guys. Tim Gaines, the bass player for Striper, was in a band called Stormer that was one of the big bands on the Sunset Strip. They played the whiskey with Metallica and Tim Gaines was best friends with Tommy Lee hmm. back in the day. So, so these guys all knew each other. They knew Stephen Piercy. They were part of that world. So, and there was a mutual respect thing going on. Um, yeah, there was no, so that, that car was a Pantera and a day later he got in that accident with Razzle. Oh God. Living down in Redondo beach. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, That's what where a the music mess. store was, I believe. Yeah. Mm, in, in Redondo. Yeah. All right. All right. For all you South bears. Wow. Yeah. Home of what? Keith Morris. As a circle jerks, and uh, Black <laughs> I think they aren't they from Redondo too. They're I think Hermosa. Actually. Hermosa, you're right. Mm -hmm. They're Hermosa. <laughs> yeah, no, we had a lot of good ones here. A lot of South Bay, uh, a lot of South Bay bands. But uh, no, yeah, I think you know it's funny because I think that movie introduced a new generation to Motley Crue, and so they'll be able to recount all those you know stories that you're bringing up. Um, yeah. That was insane. I actually remember being a kid and I I vaguely remember seeing something on the news because um, we lived in Redondo Beach at the time. And uh, when that accident happened, oh, mess. But anyways, I want to ask you a little bit about the show because you've been doing it for so long. And I mean, just even looking at your demo reel online, it is like a who's who of the music industry. So what was one interview that you were just I mean, look, look, I, I know not a lot probably phases you at this point. Um, but what was one interview that stuck out to you? You were like, yes, this is what I've always wanted to get. Or, wow, that guy, I thought nothing of it. And that was probably one of the best interviews I've ever had. Uh, uh, yeah. It it, okay. So basically, my the most important interview of my career was my, my interview with John Taylor from Duran Duran. Oh. To me... To me, that, um, and I'll tell you the, the circumstances. I, met, I interviewed John Taylor at the beginning of my show in 1999 at the premiere for Sugar Town. Mm -hmm. And it, that was his first movie debut, besides Sing Blue Silver and you know, the Duran Duran music videos. But that was his first acting gig. And basically, I interviewed him on the red carpet there. And I just said, you're the man. And he liked me and he said, hey, I'm putting you on the list because he was solo then. I'm putting you on the list. You're going to come see me at the Viper Room. I'm putting your name. Two, two times he put me on the list to see him. The Viper Room and some other club that was in L.A. And, and it was funny because he said to the camera, not you, him. He like point during the interview. So that was my first time. But that was 1999. What happened was in 2012. I was going to Ikea with my girlfriend at the time, Julie, and I had, I had heard that I had got a press release that John Taylor was coming out with his book and they'd be doing a signing. The publicity company that handled John Taylor was a very unfriendly publicity company. I had over my, whatever it was, decade, 
or over decades of doing interviews, they had just never played ball. Um, and so I'm like, well, they're not going to play ball, but I'm going to put a request in anyways. I'm go, I'm walking out the door to go, to go to Ikea. I basically, <laughs> I basically have the door locked. Something tells me go back in and check your Gmail. And that means starting up the computer. There it is. This is 2012. Yeah. If you want to interview John, Eric, if you're still interviewed and interested in interviewing John Taylor, be in LA in two hours. I call my brother and I go, John Taylor. And he's, he's at the, he's at the law firm. He's like, I'm going to drop everything. Pick me up, pick him up, go with my friend, Julie. I just happened to have a lighting kit with me. And I came up with the questions on the way there and wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. I kicked ass. And his wife was there, his beautiful model daughter was there, and John Taylor, you watch that interview, man, because that guy is one of the most important uh, icons, probably, uh, that I was very inspired by him as a kid, and I and the way he held himself also. So um, you were a big yeah, that Duran was, Duran that's fan. It. That was, uh, yeah, Rio, the first two Duran Duran records are epic. Yeah, I agree with you. So the musicianship and just, yeah, there's nothing, nothing can touch that. And his bass playing was innovative and completely pushed bass, you know, to the forefront. Well, I'll tell you something. As a young girl watching MTV, those Duran Duran videos Good Lord. It was like watching a romance novel. Yeah. And Taylor was the one I had a crush on. I was like, Simon, get out of the way. <laughs> I was like, this is the guy I want to see. Oh, yeah. I thought he was attractive. Yeah. So I can see, yeah. And and you know what? And I remember all those like early on MTV interviews too, you know? And, and obviously the story around their music videos is that essentially <laughs> MTV came to them and said, look, we want, we really want to do more vid- music videos like that. The, you guys are going to be our guys. You know, this is what's going to kill it. So they're doing, you know, Hungry Like the Wolf and they're doing Rio and all of that. And the guys were just, you know, sex symbols galore. And I'm a young kid. I'm probably like five, six years old. I remember that stuff on the TV and I'm thinking this guy's a good looking guy. But then in subsequent interviews, he was very articulate. Yeah. Um, very bright. And so that just, you know, solidified the crush right there. Yeah. But that, I mean, yeah, that's I think a good they've one. kind of they've kind of proven. Look at their look at the longevity that that band has had. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, and um, yeah, he's a mensch, um, which is a German word for man. But he's like the real deal. I mean, anybody that that could live that life and come through it unscathed is yeah, they he's got something going on. Yeah, <laughs> he's a that's awesome. I'm going to use that word. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Learn something new every day, Eric. So that was one of your best interviews. But what were some of your unforgettable moments? I got to think all those years, you saw some wild stuff. Um, you know, I'll tell you, Britney Spears was a big deal. Because Britney Spears, that was that was like at the time, you get an interview with Britney Spears. She's the biggest rock star in the world in 2002, period. And um, I remember I got to the red carpet, I set up, and there was a photo. This is how political it is. There was a photo uh, stall where they stuck all the photographers to the left of me, and the entire time they were verbally abusing me. 
because I'm telling you, it's not a walk in the park to be in the entertainment business. Sure. Um, So they were verbally abusing me saying, you think you're going to get an interview with Britney Spears? Well, blankety blank you and blank, blank, blank. And you're not going to get one. And um, Britney Spears comes up to do the interview and they try to take her away from me. And she tells them, you see it in the interview. She's like, you hold on. I'm going to talk to him. And so I got my soundbite with Britney. And then Justin interrupted me. And then you see Brittany kind of give a dirty look. And then they were broken up a week later. That was another thing. <laughs> is I, I interviewed, that became a trend because I interviewed Drew Barrymore when she was dating the comedy guy, the MTV guy. Um, yeah, um, uh, Green. Um, yeah, Tom Green. Tom Green. And he interrupted the interview. He started yelling, pizza! Well, one week later, they were broken up. <laughs> so don't mess with the star when she's doing an interview. I yeah. guess not. Or you, yeah. or they all have you in common, Eric. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That was kind of a trend back then. It was kind of weird. I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, at least one of the last interviews they do together as, as a couple, we should say, were you. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I never thought about it like that before. I know. Look at you. I mean, just, you know, on on the cusp of history, history there. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, so I, I, you know, when I usually sign off with guests, I have a couple of questions I like to ask them and you might know this right off the bat. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes people him and haw and they're like, Oh God, but top five albums for you of all time. Uh, there's, this is going to be ridiculous. Um, the first Asia record, uh, cause that, that, the, the no. John Wetton, Jeff Downs, uh, Steve Howe, Carl Palmer. I mean, it, 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 you know, and it sold 10 million copies. It stayed at number one for three weeks. Um, Heaven and Hell by Black Sabbath. Yep. Um, Rio by Duran Duran. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, this is going to be ridiculous. Uh, Haircut 100. <laughs> Pelican West. I'm sorry. That, that is a great record. I like right, I no. like this. Yeah? That's all you right. Like- Plug it. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know it. Um, well, you know, I inter- recently interviewed Nina Blackwood. She said they were one-hit wonders, but it doesn't matter. That album is, it's like, it's, a, it's escapism. Um Man, oh, Van Halen two and Van Halen one, and let's 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 throw fair warning in there for good measure because that <laughs> was, that was life changing. Man, it's too bad because I had like the Stevie Nicks uh, thing. You got it. You you would you're gonna miss out on that one. Oh no! That- tell me. Oh no no no. Hold on. I that's right. We got to hear about Stevie Nicks. Tell me that story. So. Uh, in 1982, I'm I love Stevie Nicks. I go I see Fleetwood Mac when I'm 16 at the Forum, and that's it. I'm it's I'm it's over. I'm I'm like love Stevie Nicks. So I go see Stevie Nicks every time she's ever in town. Yeah, I want to meet. I want to marry Stevie Nicks. Okay, when I'm Me 16, too. 17. Okay, so <laughs> still I want to. <laughs> basically, basically, my friend got season tickets to Irvine Meadows 
And then he called me, my friend called me and basically um, said, hey, Fleetwood Mac's going to be doing a, um, a benefit for the, for the city of Hope. And we got, we were, we were like front row and I had lots of hair back then. I remember I slicked my hair back and it was long and I slicked it back with all this gel. So it was like, and I wore like a really nice button up shirt with like a jacket and and Stevie Nicks starts singing a song and she ushers me up to the lip of the stage. So I'm standing there and she puts her hand out and holds my hand. While she's singing one of the songs, I can't remember if it was Sarah or whatever it was, but she's holding my hand singing to me. And I'm like in disbelief, basically. And security guard, a security guard runs up and tries to attack me. And she takes her tambourine and beats him senseless over the head. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. The security guard came after you because she reached out her hand to you during. Yeah, yeah. Look, look, th- look, oh. look. I am. This is authority. They don't care if it's right or wrong. He comes to get me. She beats him over the head with the tambourine. He ducks down, but below the lip of the stage. Another security guard comes from the left to attack me. She beats him over the head with the tambourine, and he ducks down. He gets back up. She beats him over the head. She beats him over the head so many times that the tambourine shatters. And I still have the pieces of the tambourine in my brother's garage. So after that, okay, listen to this, listen to this. So after that, the whole crowd just goes boom and fills the whole pit. Those security guards would not stop. They dove in the pit to get me. They came after me to remove me from the pit. And remove me from that area. But that's incredible. So as this is happening, the song has stopped, obviously. No, they keep playing. As she's she's hitting these security guards. Yes. Because she had the dominance over them because she's up on the stage and they're below. They're running. One comes to the right of me because I'm facing the stage. One comes to the right. she, She takes him out. And then one after this one gets is taken out. And when I say taken, I don't mean like murdered. I mean like he's ducking down. Then the other one runs up. And uh yeah, she shat- she shatters that. And I still have the little the little pe- the metal pieces. I still have a couple of those from the um from the show. That's insane. Uh, she well, yeah, it's just like who is you know sold out Irvine Meadows like what do you you know to her she doesn't put she doesn't suffer fools um I have a new respect for Stevie Nicks I'm not gonna lie I mean if I didn't already love her I love her more now and she was she was just at her peak in nine in eight between 79 and 83 84 she was at her like you know uh, aesthetically, she was at her peak, I think, um, because she started experiencing a little bit of tragedy after that, you know? Yeah. Well, and she was also doing her solo stuff at the time, too. So she was uh, she was larger than life. Yeah. Oh. I mean, the the last, you know, she'll admit that the last great solo album was probably uh, Wild Heart. Um, but but um, yeah, so there's a lot of I, it's just too bad that there isn't more time because. There's well, just think, so much stuff. 
I know we're going to have to do a part two, I think, because you've got some wild ones and I think we've only scratched the surface, but uh, we're going to end it on the, uh, the Stevie Nicks note too, because that that's a high one and it can't be replicated. And uh, I want to thank you for coming on Eric and sharing the stories that we were able to get to, uh, you know, this time, but uh, for those that are listening, there will definitely be a part two. Let me just give a shout out to your page. The thing that is amazing is those photos you get. Those photos are just amazing and they're inspiring. Thank you. Because it brings you to back to a simpler time, you know? Well, they're off the beaten path. I don't like the the staged ones, you know? I, I like the glimpse behind the scenes uh, type photos the best. Um, and there's some amazing photographers out there that have done a good job at capturing those. So paying homage no, to and, them. And, and no filters. You, you're not trying to re, reinvent the wheel. No filters. Because a lot of people are filtering pictures now. And it's just like, why? Come on. These people are like in their heyday. They don't need no. a filter. No, we got to keep it raw. We got to keep it regular. I want to, I don't, I don't want some glossy, you know, eight by 12 that was on the cover of a magazine. I want yeah. something that happened, you know, behind the scenes in the hotel room at four in the morning. Yeah. That's what I want. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, Eric, thanks so much. Thanks for these awesome memories. And like I said, you'll be back. Okay, man. Thank (laughs) you so much, Amanda. You rock. Thanks so much for joining, guys. If you liked this episode, share a pic on Instagram and tag me. Send me a message to let me know what you liked or what you want to hear more of or feel free to leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to head over to LA Woman Rocks on Instagram for some great classic rock photography.